0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another awesome episode of Pod Wars, guys. My name's Evan, and on Pod Wars, we like to talk about Star Wars, Marvel, and all of our favorite geeky content. Hey, I've missed y'all, but you know what? We got some awesome news this week.
1: So, this week, we have a spicy new guest. But you know what? Before we get deep into the spiciness, it's time for one of our favorite segments Twitter tidbits. Live, Live from the pod, pod nation. nation. We bring, we bring, you, bring you Twitter tidbits. So guys, we had a recent Twitter poll on who do you think is the most imposing imperial leader? Tarkin, Thrawn, or other? <laughs> 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 so I cool. I have a very, very strong opinion about Other. That guy's a jerk. But Thrawn won with 44% of the vote. Tarkin got 33%. And Other, a resounding 22%. Uh,
0: Thrawn wins for me because of Rebels, obviously.
1: He's, he's pretty great, but I can see Tarkin getting the love and all the nuggos. Um, thank you, Force Losers, for the little comment of Tarkin, because it's the accent, man. I mean, he does have that, like, British, I want to say, accent. I'm not an accent specialist, an accentologist. I don't know if that's a freaking verbiage, but I'm assuming so. And it, it is quite trust trustworthy, you know, like, he just sounds smart and menacing. But Justice, speaking of Twitter stuff, he had a little teaser for our next podcast
2: right last episode we talked about the gillian darth vader run and after not this monday when we're going to drop this episode but the following week we're going to talk about the soul run so be excited check out both the darth vader runs some great comics we're going to talk about but guys you're going to want to stick around because this interview is just absolutely awesome and there's some crazy bonker stories
1: So this week, we interview stuntman Chris Leps, and Chris has worked on a ton of stuff. Chances are you've seen him many, many times already without knowing it. He has been on little-known projects like 24, uh, Daredevil, and Pirates of the Caribbean, where he stunt double for Johnny Depp. Pirates of the Caribbean, Stranger Tides, you probably saw him more than you saw Johnny. <laughs> but, <laughs> and as well as our favorite little geeky media stuff like The Walking Dead, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., The Last Airbender, Firefly. Like, you look in his IMDb and you don't really know which ones are the highlights. They're all so dope. So prepare for the awesomeness ahead with all these great stories from our boy, friend of the pod, Chris Leps. All right, guys. So we are really excited today to have Chris Leps, a Hollywood stuntman, and his IMDb, if you look at some of the work he's been on, it's insane. It's hard for me to highlight all of them because there's so many great productions that you've probably already seen him without knowing. You got stuff like he's worked on 24, he's worked with a lot of geeky media, with The Walking Dead, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., and of course, one of our favorite series, The Pirates of the Caribbean as stuntman for Johnny Depp. Chris, thank you so much for coming on the show.
3: Oh man, thank you guys for having me. This, this is so awesome. I'm, uh, I'm a huge fan
0: and uh, I'm happy to be among uh, all your other guests. Thank you. Yeah, awesome. Man, I think you're like our first guest that actually uh, checked us out before and made sure we weren't like serial killers or something. Like you actually did your homework. <laughs> <laughs> no i actually
3: no no i i actually heard about your podcast um i can't remember exactly when but um i definitely listened to a few episodes i think i was turned on to it by um someone through the the comic-con realm um i'm not really big in that scene i've you know i've been a couple times but um somehow it came my way and i listened to it and uh no you guys do a great job and you just sound like you have so much fun every week so i'm happy to be a part of it
1: hey thanks man that's
2: that's really cool knowing that it came from uh, Comic-Con realm. That makes my heart happy.
0: <laughs> well,
1: to and get... it doesn't hurt that you guys aren't serial killers. Yeah, good, good. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you've only been talking with us for about five or ten minutes. You don't really have confirmation yet.
0: <laughs> uh, what, what's your home address? No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, so being a Star Wars podcast, we uh, always start off with our first question. Chris, what is your favorite Star Wars film?
3: I love it. So it's funny because I feel like years ago, my answer was definitely an unpopular answer. And in more recent years, it's become a popular answer, which is hard for me because I pride myself on not running with the crowd. But hands down, my favorite is Empire. Okay. Uh, the original slash despecialized edition, of course.
2: <laughs> yeah, um,
3: I'm going to... I'm. I'm going to date myself here. So I saw Star Wars in the theater in 1977. And I'm fairly certain my parents took us one. I mean, they definitely took us two or three times. Um, and then, of course, you know, Empire came out in the summer of 80. Now, bear with me because I'm going to give you my reasoning, but also a minor rant. <laughs> so it, you have to understand, movies in those days never sucked. Going to the movies was one of the best adventures you could have as a kid. Because back then, it was always guaranteed to be awesome. And I don't know about you guys, but now more often than not, when I go to a theater to see a film, I'm usually saying to myself beforehand, man, I hope this doesn't suck. And then if it doesn't, you, you walk out of the theater pleasantly surprised, right? That's awful. It never used to be like that. So, and I know every generation thinks it's the best. So years ago, I asked my parents, I said, Have I romanticized movies from my childhood, or do the majority of films suck these days? And my parents responded, It's not
1: you. There are a lot of bad films these days. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's fair. I always blame my cold, calloused, older heart for the fact that I don't enjoy movies more, but I think you're (laughs) definitely right.
3: Well, it's interesting. I don't know exactly when it happened, but I, I personally believe that it was some point during the 90s The nineties gave us so many great films, but somewhere in there, it feels like Hollywood tried to create this, you know, air quotes formula and the business of art became the art of business. And as films got more expensive, of course, the studios put a lot more pressure on return on investment. And look, I get it. Nobody goes into business to lose money. Right. But cinema is art and art is subjective and there's no magic formula that creates a guaranteed blockbuster though that certainly hasn't stopped them from trying. Um, but I want to be clear now, I'm not necessarily saying that the writing is bad and that the writers are responsible. Unfortunately, more often than not these days, at least with big studio films that it's filmmaking by committee. There's a lot of money at stake and all the chefs want their input on the recipe. Um, you know, there's that great line from Ratatouille, not, not everyone can become a great artist, but a great artist can come from anywhere. Relating that to filmmaking, a great idea can come from anywhere, but not every idea is great. So you have a number of studio executives, you know, you have a number of studio executives who climb the ladder because of their financial achievements, not necessarily their creative achievements. And they all want their ideas to be incorporated into the script. Hence, you know, too many cooks spoil the broth. So why is empire my favorite? Make no mistake. A new hope had a profound impact on me. Seeing a lightsaber for the first time Seeing the Falcon for the first time, which to this day is still my favorite spaceship, not only in its design, but also the story points, the, the story elements surrounding it. Um, all the characters and my feelings for them. Take all that. Fast forward three years, and I was now you know eight, almost nine. So I was a little bit older. And also, this was my first sequel experience. Up until then, all the movies I had seen were one and done. Hmm. So there was that excitement as well. But remember... <laughs> Films did not suck. So when we went to the theater to see empire sitting in that seat and the lights went down, you knew you were about to see something incredible and that film delivered and it was, it was magical. And, you know, you might ask, well, what about the adult you? And my answer is still the same because that film is incredibly cinematic. Cinema is an artistic visual medium. And yet the irony is that too often the visual artistry is lost, especially in contemporary films. So in my opinion, that, I just feel that composition is a lost art in many ways. And so, you know, so many films are just a bunch of scenes comprised of master shot coverage, coverage, inserts done. And I get it. Not every film endeavors to be or needs to be a cinematic masterpiece. Right. But here's this silly little sci-fi sequel that is shot beautifully. The framing is composed brilliantly. The character development and plot points are epic. The score was flawless. And, and, and as my buddy, John would say, so, I mean, it's just, it's, it's a great cinematic adventure. So uh, that's, there you go. There's, there's, there's my answer.
0: <laughs> no, that is a very elegant way to put it. Um, that, like that experience for you is, I didn't really experience that until a couple years ago when Blade Runner 2049 came out. Like, Ah, nice. Okay. Like I've I've, you know, I'm a fan of what I like. Like I'll go see the Spider-Man movie and I'll just like it cuz I like Spider-Man, right? But like when I saw Blade Runner 2049, I never heard about it. I I was like I'm just going to go see this and I was like this movie's special. Like it's and then sure enough it won all these awards, right? And that might be the best movie in like the last 5 or 10 years. But <laughs> but that's I I agree that there are a lot of hands in the cookie jar.
1: Yeah. And I mean I feel the same exact way anytime I see Nick Cage on on the big screen. So <laughs> <laughs> There it is. There it is. Yeah, but, Ooh,
3: we sn- we snuck that one in early. <laughs> yeah,
1: right. <laughs> Classic uh, our podcast drinking game. Take a drink every time I mention Nick Cage, but <laughs> 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 But we'd be remiss if we didn't jump into kind of your bread and butter, what you're known for. And you mentioned kind of the changes in cinema, but how do you feel like you, obviously, as a stuntman, how do you feel like that art of performing stunts has changed with the changes of cinema?
3: Yeah, no, I mean, it's a great question. And obviously, you know, alongside filmmaking in general, there's been a lot of technical advancements uh, in equipment and safety gear, but also in how stunt sequences are shot. Um, you know, I feel stunt performers and stunt coordinators and second directors have all inspired new ways in which to shoot action because the creativity involved in how those sequences are imagined and designed. Um, you know, pre-vis, pre-visualization, you know, that was a technique that was originally used primarily for visual effects. But now I don't know of any live-action films and a lot of TV for that matter that don't use pre-vis on some level in pre-production. And in most in most cases, the stunt department creates the previs for the action sequences because there's usually rehearsal, and we take that time to film and then cut together, and then that video is shared with all the department heads, which is incredibly helpful, you know, across the board to be able to see, you know, what's in store and what, you know, what, how that was translated from the script into live action or in in various cases mocap. So that in itself has just completely you know changed the game. Um, but you know, like like everything else, they want it bigger, faster, higher, crazier. So while we have a lot of safety, um, you know, not only equipment but also you know guidelines and and things of that nature that have advanced, things have also gotten more dangerous. So in many ways, it's kind of stayed you know relative. But um, you know, it's funny. Speaking of of visual effects, years ago there was the there was the sort of fear, not necessarily among not necessarily within the stunt community but in the industry in general that cgi would replace stuntmen Mm -hmm. and you know i've been i've been in this game a long time and to my knowledge i have never lost a job because of cgi in fact there's been a few situations where i've actually gotten more work because of cgi due to face replacement where Mm -hmm. i have been air quotes the actor and they've put his act you know his his face on my face Mm -hmm. and i've done the action sequence so Um, I think in regards to background performers, obviously the software, um, you know, all of that technology has advanced by leaps and bounds. And so if you need 400 extras running across the background, you can create that in, in the computer mm-hmm. and in post. But again, for me, for my part and my personal experience, I, I feel that stunts and visual effects have have actually advanced together and have complemented each other, not necessarily taken away from
1: each other. So. Well, I mean, you mentioned that kind of difference with adding in the face and everything. I was wondering with your experience, because you were the double for Andy Serkis for The Adventures of Tintin, and Andy Serkis is known, obviously, as Snoke and Gollum and really advancing that aspect. What kind of work did you do there? Did you do more of the motion capture? Can you kind of describe that experience?
3: Yeah, that you know, that was an incredible experience. Raiders of the Lost Ark is my favorite film of all time and to work with Steven Spielberg to meet him is one thing to actually be directed by him is, I mean, it was surreal. It was, it was absolutely surreal. My very first day on the set, which was all mocap. We were shooting inside of a volume. My very first day, my very first scene, I'm sitting at a table as captain Haddock and Steven Spielberg is doing the classic, the iconic director hands at me. And Peter Jackson is over his right shoulder <laughs> and, 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 and Steven Spielberg says, Chris, can you ch- um, change your eyeline a little bit to the left? And in my head, I'm like, Steven Spielberg just called me by my name and gave me stage direction. <laughs> so it was, it was, it was pretty amazing. You know, the, the little kid, you know, if you would had told the, the little kid that fell in love with Raiders. That that would one day be the case, I would have I would have freaked out. But um, yeah, so that that film was all shot in motion capture. And to be fair, Andy is one of the most amazing, gifted physical performers—not just actor, physical performers. I mean, he's just because not only of his background, his experience with all the the films and the motion capture um, sequences that he's done, he's incredibly. Aware and has a vast understanding of how to create what is necessary in that regard. I was In every sense of the word just I was truly a stunt double. Um, I was there to take the knocks I was there to do the fight choreography Um, I was there to do some of the more advanced action sequences, but what's great about motion capture is that You can create far more dangerous sequences much safer because you don't have to be suspended 100 feet in the air you don't have to be dangling on the edge of a real cliff even if you have three or four safety lines on you you know so there was visually you get all of this help um just through the process of how the film is made and and put together so um you know there was that whole that whole motorcycle chase sequence and i wasn't even needed for that because andy did it all it's it's motion capture so um but it was it was a great experience. He was incredibly uh, he was incredibly kind and courteous, and was so great to work with. And he signed a bunch of uh, Lord of the Rings stuff for me uh, on our last day. So it, was, it. it was a real pleasure.
2: <laughs> so so you talked about how um, as a kid you really liked Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, so I kind of want to take a step back and just want to know what led you to becoming a stuntman.
3: <sighs> you know, it's interesting. Um, I. <sighs> I, I hesitate in saying this because I don't fully believe it, but you do have to be careful about what media you expose your children to <laughs> <laughs> because I am living proof that it will have an impact. So again, rewinding the clock. One of the most magical things about the star Wars tril- trilogy was that, you know, Mark Hamill, Carrie Fisher, Harrison Ford, they were unknowns i mean harrison ford had done american graffiti but i wasn't old enough to see that movie yet so i i only knew him as han solo so now you know rewind the clock on the rare occasion that i was actually attempting to do some homework my dad comes in my room and says hey chris the guy that played han solo is in a new movie about an archaeologist archeolo- that gets into all these crazy adventures. Do you want to go see it? And I, and I, was, I was like, Dad, of course I want to go see it. <laughs> so, of course, we, we, we went to see Raiders. And, you know, again, for as much impact as the Star Wars films had on me, Raiders had a, had a far greater impact. Probably because I was a little bit older, but also it was more tangible. I mean like you guys and like millions of other kids, I've pretended to be, you know, Luke Skywalker with a lightsaber. You know, I'd unroll the the Christmas wrapping paper and get the tube and go out there and swing it. (laughs) But Indiana Jones, he lives on earth, man. He's a real guy and he can, he swings from real vines and he, you know, he runs from real boulders. So that to me, it was just more tangible and just in the realm of make-believe, but also cinematically Raiders just had an incredibly profound, you know, impact on me. I mean, just, I mean, it's brilliant, you know, and to, to anyone who dismisses Raiders as an action film, I would say, go back and watch that film and watch it with the sound off. That film is an absolute cinematic masterpiece. Just the use of all of Spielberg's best techniques, just incredible storytelling. It's, it's, it's perfect. It's a perfect film in my, in my opinion. So, um, so, so filmmaking was always my end goal, actually, as a kid, I didn't know how it was going to happen because I grew up in central Florida and California was this mystical magical place where movies were made. And that was, that was, you know, way out West. And it just wasn't a part of my reality. I just didn't know I'd ever move out here. Um, and I didn't have a plan after high school because I was a daydreamer in high school. I was always dreaming about films and never thought about the future. And, um, fortunately I got into martial arts and gymnastics, um, relatively early on. I was about 14 and, um, got into the, you know, after high school, got into the live shows that were available. I did, you know, I opened the the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle show at the Disney Gym Studios back when it was the Disney Gym Studios. Yes. Um, yeah. The, the Turtles realm. That's a whole, that's a whole another podcast altogether. <laughs> oh, for sure. Um, I did, I, you know, I did the Wild West stunt show at Universal. I did the Indiana Jones stunt show at, at Disney, which was a, which was another dream come true because to be able to perform in that show and be a part of to be an official part of the, the Indiana Jones universe. Um, and so shortly after that, so I had this sort of background already. And, um, I did my first, uh, I got my first TV series, WMAC masters, which was a kid's martial arts TV show, which was the best thing that could have happened to me at that time. It was a great way to break into it. It was non-union, but I got a ton of experience. And then I did my first non-union film shortly after that. And then I realized that I could wait, I could actually make a living at this. I could actually make this happen. And this could be my way into filmmaking. Um, And so I got my SAG card on the Mortal Kombat TV series, which was shot in Florida at the Disney studios and did a few more films and then made the move to Los Angeles. And um, so it just kind of, I mean, you know, not to, not to make too cheese ball of a comparison, but the boulder uh, started rolling on my career and hey. kind of got into it.
0: That was so good.
3: So, but you know, I knew filmmaking wouldn't happen overnight and I also knew that, you know, I, you want your, you know, you want your day job to be somewhat enjoyable and inspirational and you want to have, at least some level of passion for it. And that was absolutely the case with stunt work because I was already working in the industry that I ultimately was going to be in. I was working with the people I was ultimately going to work with. So it was, you know, the, the, the whole stunt realm was just, it was a great, I've made a great living at it and it's been a great adventure. And I'm, I'm very thankful and, and proud of what it's done. It's done for me.
0: That's, that's really crazy. You say that Cause, uh, I went to, you know, Disney World when I was like 9, 2004, and it, and I saw the Indiana Jones live show. Like that could have been you, man. <laughs>
3: like. Well, I well I was I was gone. I was long gone by then. I I um I got my SAG card in 1998, so I, I my last show was in 98, um but I had a great 4 years there and it was it was really a, a special time and I'm so grateful for those days and you know, the nostalgic part of me definitely misses the simplicity of life at that time on some, on, on some levels. But, um, it's been a, it's been a great journey, but yeah, it's, it's a great show to this day. It's still, it's still one of the best live shows in the world. Yeah.
0: Well, s- speaking of, you talking about your childhood kind of makes me want to talk about one of our childhood favorite films is, uh, the pirates of the Caribbean series. And <laughs> I mean, we're, we were looking at this picture of you and Johnny Depp together dressed as, a you know, Jack Sparrow and we're just kind of nerding out. So, What was it like working on those films?
3: Oh, oh man. I mean, Curse of the Black Pearl was a dream come true. Um, I'm very much a Disney guy, in case you haven't let on yet. Um, It was my favorite ride at at Disney World as a kid. And to be, it's interesting because you have to remember they didn't know how successful that film was going to be. In fact, in many ways, that film was a gamble because, um, you know, the pirates genre up until then. Um, in the decades prior, they they hadn't been successful, and so it was a little bit of a roll of the dice. And I'm sure you guys have heard the the tales of you know they were seeing the dailies and what Johnny was doing, and you know what Gore was doing as a director. And they you know the studio executives were losing their minds. They were like, "What is this? This is is he is he drunk? Is he coherent? What's the story?" And of course, it, it but I mean it was it was pure gold, right? I mean it was amazing, and so shortly after that success the studio by you know i remember them saying we want to do five more of these films we want to do a total of six they wanted the jack sparrow character to be like a sort of like a james bond character where he got into all these crazy adventures and so we filmed um so i had the great great honor and privilege to be a part of the first film and then we filmed pirates two and three simultaneously over the next you know several years and so it was an incredible stretch of work and it was all the same cast, all the same crew. It really felt like a family. And the culmination of that into Pirates 4, that was the best job and experience of my career. And in many ways, that year, 2010, was one of the best years of my life. I mean, I am eternally grateful to George Ruge, who was the second director and stunt coordinator, um, not only to have me be a part of all three of those films leading up to that, but then giving me the opportunity to double Johnny Depp and um you know i'd worked with johnny in a few scenes on the other films but doubling him was obviously a completely different experience altogether and it was awesome and george has become one of my closest friends and so i'm also so grateful that that transpired as well but you know pirates four in particular rob marshall is probably one of the most courteous and gracious directors i've ever worked with Um, in his relationship with the cast and crew in his approach to the work i mean he is so laser focused on his vision for a film and yet he will ask your input. And if something, you know, doesn't feel right on the rare occasion that it's not working, whatever, he'll, he'll come over to you and say, what can be done to make this work as opposed to another director who might say, Hey, do this, like make it work. Um, And so that in itself was just a real highlight of that experience. I remember when we had the premiere uh, they held the premiere at Disneyland And I got to go and I took my entire family, but I wasn't on the ultra VIP uh, media, um, portion of the red carpet. Obviously that's for the, the a-listers and the executives and things like that. I was walking by with my family. Here's Rob Marshall being interviewed by, I don't, I don't even know who he had a ton of microphones in his face. He sees me, he stops his interview, waves to me and waves me over and i'm like no 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 you're, you're in the middle and he goes come here come here and so i walk over there with my entire family he puts his arm around me looks into the camera and says and this is chris laps who doubled for johnny and is this your family and I, we're like we just start this conversation and he's taught and he's saying it's nice to meet my mom and dad and every, And i'm like rob you're a world premiere to your, of your movie get back to it i mean just that's who he is and i've kept in touch with him and his life and producing partner john DeLuca, and they are just absolutely wonderful people so um I worked on Pirates Five as well, but Disney, for whatever reason, decided to change up the formula, and they got all new directors, all new, um, all new crew. Not all new. There were there were some some return um, regulars, but um, but Pirates Four was definitely to to Pirates One, Two, and Three were the perfect buildup to that film. And mm. I, again, the nostalgic part of me looks looks back at Pirates Four, and I think to myself, you know. I don't know that it will ever be that good again because it truly it truly was the tip the just the top of the mountain. And I'm so grateful to have been a part of it and so thankful for the people that were a part of it and allowed me to be a part of it.
1: I was wondering with that project, since I mean obviously Johnny Depp, it cost probably hundreds of thousands of dollars just for getting him to say two words on camera. What's it like Doing the stunts for an A list actor like that? Do you get to maybe share more scenes, less scenes? What is, what's the dynamic like when you're working with someone as big of a name as Johnny Depp?
3: Um, it's definitely interesting because, uh, first of all, I know there's a lot of stuff going on about Johnny right now, and I can only speak from my experience with him. He is an absolute gentleman he is a class act. He is the coolest guy you want to meet. And he does not think he's the coolest guy, which is, helps what, that's what makes him so cool. Um, he's just, he just does his thing, you know? And look, when you're surrounded, when you become that big, you are surrounded by people who want to keep that momentum going, you know? I mean, let's face it. This is a this business is driven by revenue and when you generate that much revenue you know it's interesting i remember people after pirates four had had, had its theatrical run worldwide and there was talk of a pirates five and you know teach their own you know as a stunt performer and as an audience member i'm two separate n- entities but for whatever reason you know some people rolled their eyes oh god they're doing another pirates five and i said do you realize that as a major If not the major studio in the entertainment industry, that when your last film in a franchise makes $1 billion worldwide, you absolutely cannot stop. You can't. (laughs) It's no, and I, I, it's you just can't because it's worth it to roll the dice one or two more times. And even if you fall short of that, it's just the worldwide grosses, uh, they just dictate that sort of you know they generate that kind of um you know build up to the next to the next film so anyway um but look when you're at that A list level you are a money making machine you know to put it in industry terms obviously we're all human beings and we're we're having this incredible experience in our you know respective journeys but you know you become a product and when there's that much money surrounding a product you've got to keep that product selling and so Johnny has a lot of people around him and he has a, he has a large team of people that, that are there to take care of him and to keep him going. And what is great about that is when you get inside of that and you're one-on-one with him and you're talking to him, he's just as down to earth as he could be. And it was really, really cool. And I, know, and I was a fan of his work for many years. I mean, growing up in Central Florida, I remember when they were shooting Edward Scissorhands in Tampa, Florida. And I thought, oh, they're making a big Hollywood movie in Tampa, Florida, you know? And, um, so I, I, you know, his, his work, you know, what I love and respect about him is he, his, his, his real passion projects, like many of us are the smaller films, the, sm- the more independent films. Um, if you never saw the film, the libertine, do yourself a favor and see it. It's one of his most incredible performances ever. Um, but he does these, these big studio films because they're fun. I mean, how fun is captain Jack Sparrow? It's amazing. Um, so anyway, I don't know if I, I I don't know if I answered your question, but to work with him was incredible. Um, he's just as cool as he could be. And he, he, again, he's right up there with the classiest of them all. He's, he, he understands and respects how films are made. He knows where he's needed and when he's, and when he's not, um, chances are, if it wasn't on Johnny's face, it was probably me in pirates four, because why should Johnny Depp? run across the screen, you know, <laughs> running away from you when he's going to be, you know, this big on the screen. If you're not going to see his face, he doesn't need to be there for that. That's not have Chris, have Chris do it. And I was more than happy to do it because the unique thing about doubling someone, uh, or at least being doubling a character like captain Jack Sparrow is the physicality. And that was actually part, you know, George already had me in mind, but he said, Hey man, you got to prove to me that you can, you can move like this guy. I, I need your best Captain Jack Sparrow impression. And of course I'd been studying the films and I, and I had it down and, and because the physicality was such a big part of creating that character, it didn't need to be Johnny when it, when it, you know, when it wasn't necessarily, and it's funny, even Rob, you know, would, would get to the point where he'd say, you know, Chris, are you cool with, you know, with, look, he's an A-list guy and he's, (laughs) his trailer's far away. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there's, it's funny, there's those, there's those stories about You know, you're working on these big films with these with these big actors and all their all their trailers are kind of around each other and they all get called to set. But they peek out the window to see if the other ones have left yet because no one wants to be the first one on set waiting for everyone else. (laughs) So you've got these four A-list, four A-list actors that are all waiting, waiting for the other one to go to set first and no one goes. And so (laughs) the scene gets gets. Thirty minutes behind because no one's left their trailers yet. It's hilarious. <laughs>
1: That's great. Well, it's funny you mentioned that because one of our Twitter questions came from a shout out to a certain point of view podcast for giving us this question. But how hard was it to get the Jack Sparrow movements and mannerisms down? Like, I, I'm just imagining if I was trying to do that, I'd just method act, take a couple shots right before each and every scene to make sure <laughs> <laughs> you really got that.
3: <laughs> you know, it's it was it was funny. I've, I don't, and I guess I got it from, I guess I acquired this sort of talent from growing up watching, you know, films and things. I was always, I was always very much of an imitator um, and sort of an impersonator I would. And just physically I'm, I just have, you know, I'm, I've been known to be called animated and um, watching those films, you know, he had such a unique way of, of movement and, just getting from point A to point B was almost like dance choreography. <laughs> yeah. And then of course there's, and, and then of course there's the run with the flailing arms and, you know, and things like that. <laughs> oh so, yeah. <laughs> um, I just, I kind of, you know, if, if anyone had seen me alone in my room with my boxer shorts on practicing the run, they would have thought I was an insane person. But, um, <laughs> I, I will say, uh, multiple hours went into, uh, <laughs> getting that, getting the run down. Um, but uh, yeah, no, it was, it was, it came relatively naturally just because of my, you know, just how I kind of work and approach stuff visually. You know, I'm, I'm very much, a, you know, I very much a visual learner. So, um, if you show me something and I can start to feel it out, it becomes a lot more natural and, and easier to, to achieve.
2: Well, so, uh, this is a kind of like a two-parter question, but, um, because you did so much like work on, uh, pirates, what is like stunt are you like most proud of performing? And then just in general, what's been like the most proud, like, Stunt that you're proud of pouring as well.
3: Oh, you know, that's a, that's a great and popular question. And I'm, I'm going to give a brand new answer because, you know, years ago when I was, when I was younger and, and I done you know, I, I've done a fair amount of, you know, look, stuntmen are, are professional performers. We don't want to get hurt. You know um, it's our, we want to continue working. We're not, we're not daredevils. We're not crazy. We don't want to, you know, do something just for the sake of doing it. It's, it's very calculated in the approach and we want to stay as safe as possible because getting hurt, it's, it puts you out of work and no one wants that. So I can count on one hand where I was truly, you know, air quotes defying death, where if something went wrong, that there was a good chance that I would pass and not be here anymore. Thankfully I'm still here. Um, So I've done, I've done a handful of those, you know, I've hung from helicopters and I've, you know, done some, near misses with cars and things like that. And, but, and maybe I would have given those answers years ago, but I have to say, and it's not just because it's my favorite of my body of work, the chandelier sequence in Pirates of the Caribbean 4. If you recall the film, you know Jack Sparrow, he devises this spur of the moment plan to escape from the dining hall where he's being interrogated by King George, um, who's played by Richard Griffiths, who was such a, a wonderful man. Unfortunately, he passed away a couple of years later. Um, or, or actually maybe shortly thereafter, but anyway, and there's all these guards. And so generally speaking, there's a fair amount of rehearsal times on big films of that nature. You know, we had several months of rehearsal on pirates Four, but most of that was focused on the fight choreography because there were a number of fight sequences and we had to learn them all beforehand because there wouldn't be enough time later. Once we started filming, not only because of the filming schedule, but also because we had other things to rehearse. And so most of the fight choreography Rehearsal took place in Los Angeles a few months before um, we started filming in Hawaii and uh, Thomas DuPont was our, the sword choreographer and also doubled for Jeffrey Rush and all those films. And Thomas is, he's amazing. He's, he's one of, if not the best sword choreographer in the industry. But anyway, so we had these months where we were hammering out these fight scenes and, um, and just rehearsing, rehearsing. And then we got to, we got to work some of those out later um, when we got to Kauai, but still, it was mostly fights. And a lot of the other action sequences required equipment and you know set pieces and things like that. So the chandelier escape scene, that wasn't until London, which was still several months away. And I don't even think this, the set for that was constructed yet. So once we got to London, we were rehearsing the fights with the UK stunt team and working with the actors on their portions of the fight scenes. And so I never got to rehearse the chandelier. In fact, I only saw a video of it a few days beforehand i think someone shot a test of it on their iphone and said hey here's what we're we're thinking of so the reason why i'm so proud of that is because it was basically like a mini trapeze and i'm not a trapeze artist i'm i'm not an ex-circus guy and you know it required just the right timing on the jump and all the swings and then you know reaching up to the balcony and so it's interesting (laughs) because I remember to make it more, even more challenging, Rob wanted me to reach back. There was a cream puff that Captain Jack Sparrow kicks up and it lands on the chandelier. And, and as he reaches up to the railing, Rob said, can you reach back and grab the cream puff before the chandelier swings away all in one shot? And I was just like, Oh my God. So it's interesting because in the film they used a close-up, they used an insert uh, to capture that moment. But I'm, I'm here to tell you that that was all done in one in one take, not one take, we did multiple takes, but it was one sequence from start to finish. (laughs) So, um, now, and of course, of course I was in a harness and I had on a wire for safety, but the reality is the wire actually created more of a challenge because the line running from my back up to, up to the pick point would actually get caught in the chandelier. So I actually needed to kind of work not only my body weight around the chandelier, but also the wire. So there was no, like I said, I got no rehearsal. So I got there and got in the harness and and just got right into it. And the first, George wanted to rehearse it first. He said, "Hey, this, is, you know, it's only fair to you. Let's rehearse this." And so I was rehearsing and rehearsing, and it was hot as hell, and I was just sweating. And I, I I finally said to George, "I said George, let's just go for it, because I feel like, I feel like once I'm dialed in, I'll just I'll I'll be able to give it to you. I'm not quite there yet, but I'm very much an on the day performer. Like I get." when I'm, when I, when we, you know, I I love rehearsal. It's incredibly, it's incredibly helpful and obviously a necessity, but call it adrenaline or call it whatever. I, when I get in the moment of filming is, is where I really shine. And so I knew that once we started rolling and all that energy and excitement was surrounding it, that I would nail it. And of course that was the case. And we did it several times, all in one Reached back, got the cream puff, jumped over the railing. (laughs) And I'm, I'm incredibly proud of it because it was just one of those moments where it wasn't a ton of rehearsal it took incredible physicality it's one of those things i never imagined myself doing and so to be able to achieve that on the day sort of you know because it just where it fell on the schedule and how things worked out because it was sort of last minute that i think that's probably the one i'm most proud of
1: well also you have to kind of most likely kind of consider the acting component while you're doing this incredibly intricate stunt. You mentioned like the funny thing of the cream puff, like you have to be in this incredibly intricate stunt think, how would I still be Captain Jack Sparrow? <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> yeah, it's that- still like acting chops in the middle of this complex maneuver.
3: Well, the great thing about that is that it was incredibly flaily anyway, because to reach from one arm of the chandelier to the next took some sort of kicking and swinging of legs. And so it, it sort of naturally kind of lent itself to that sort of movement. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, but I, I have to be honest, that was not my first thought on those first few takes. I was like, Get over the railing and grab the cream puff, man. <laughs> <laughs> forget, forget Captain Jack for a second. You yeah, need to do this.
1: I mean, thankfully they had to stunt cream puff too, so don't <laughs> worry, everyone. The cream <laughs> puff was fine.
3: <laughs> you know, it, it's funny you mentioned that. A, a good friend of mine, Patrick Loungeway, who was the um, second unit director of photography with us, so he worked on all of the the second unit sequences. Um, He's actually become a a big second director now, but uh, he got one of the stunt cream puffs and saved it. And I think two years later gave it to me as a Christmas present. And for a split second, I opened it up and obviously it's not real. It's, you know, it's, it's made of foam, but it's, it's incredibly lifelike. And I opened it up and for a split second, I was like, what the hell is this? (laughs) And then it, it, and then I realized, and I really, I almost, I got a little bit teary eyed. I was like, you don't know what this means to me. And it's, it's, I actually have it right here. Where, yes.
0: yes. <laughs>
3: the listeners can't see this, but there you go, guys.
0: Dude. Oh, that's dope. <laughs> <laughs> that does look o- very real. The official stunt cream puff. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah well no i'm so glad you said that because i was seriously about to ask like i was hoping you had that cream puff so i'm i'm very happy for that story
3: i don't get to save a lot of memorabilia but when i do it's 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 pretty unique
1: (laughs) oh that's great uh but okay we have to ask because you've done so much other forms of media and as a podcast that covers a lot of geeky media some of the credits we'd like to have our listeners know you've worked on so the walking dead and agents of shield more on the marvel front you've done last airbender obviously not the cartoon version uh star trek enterprise daredevil um firefly which if you guys don't know that show you need to watch it and it was canceled way too early but can you guys agree yeah it's it's so great, but can you describe if you remember I know you've done a ton of stunts any of those experiences and kind of give us a breakdown on those a bit?
3: Yeah, uh, we'll do a rapid fire um, so walking dead i I have to be honest I up until that point, I had never seen a single episode of the show and but I knew that it was this phenomenon, right So I got the call and it was great. Um, it was interesting. I don't remember the name of the episode I think it was it was sometime in the eighth season, early the end. on. And, okay, well done. There you go. Yeah, Yeah. I remember that for my contract. It's almost like we did research or (laughs) something. The internet is a wondrous realm. Um, We were doing this double car hit where uh, it's interesting because I expected to be surrounded by zombies or to be a zombie myself, and it was actually all humans in the scene. And so I guess it was these two separate factions that were fighting each other, but I was on the wrong faction apparently. But anyway, uh, this car was backing backing up at you know high speed and it was myself another stunt man we got did a double car hit which is where we got hit and went up and over the car and you know usually just do one of those where there's just one performer and you know the director or the stunt coordinator will say hey stay on the car or come over the hood well the other stunt performer went over the hood and they wanted me to stay up on top of the car because later i'm impaled by this metal siding that's on the car and i and i fall into the shot and the driver sees it and there's all this blood that comes out of my mouth (laughs) so I walk up to the car that we're going to be hit by and i see all this metal siding and i thought well this looks interesting but it's so funny if uh, hopefully it's on the behind the scenes somewhere sometimes the simplest ways are the best we actually used pool noodles and we put these pool noodles all over the sharp edges of these beams that held the the metal siding on there so if we were to you know get into that area that would be relatively safe it wouldn't cut us you know you might get a, might get a A pretty decent sized bruise, but you know just keeping us as
1: safe as possible so you're like a little bit tricky production with the walking dead big budget (laughs) and they sell like five bucks and pool noodles and they'll be fine
3: (laughs) i'm telling you they were it 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 was a fantastic idea it worked it worked great and so we did it a couple times and um yeah it was a little bit tricky but we nailed it and uh and the other stuntman went over the went down the hood and then i stayed up top and then you know dangled my head and all the blood came out and that was Yucky. And then um, so that was fun. I, I've only seen a couple episodes since. Um, it's just there's so much, there's so much to watch out there, and, and to to attempt to be a productive member of society and catch up on all the good quality media that's out there, it's 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 borderline impossible. But um yeah, Agents of Shield was super fun. Um I uh for the, the episode The Well, uh that was in season one, and uh, I, I stunt doubled a character named Jacob Nystrom. Uh, who was played by Michael Graziati, who is such a cool guy. And um, what was neat about that episode, it was directed by Jonathan Frakes, who was obviously Riker in Star Trek Next Generation and has has uh, done a number of the, the Star Trek uh, shows and actually is, is quite an accomplished director. So it was just cool to work with him. Not that I'm a huge Star Trek fan, but I know enough of the universe that I recognized him and thought, oh, that's cool. Um, but it's funny because when you – it's interesting – you know, again, stunt, stunt performers, we all want to keep working. And so if you see our face, we call it burning our face. Like if you, if you recognize me, then I can't be another character or another, you know, uh, I can't be elsewhere in the scene. So we always try to hide our face. And so because I had doubled Michael, who has a pretty good double for, um, my face, just my, it, not so much my, my face, but my features were relatively recognizable. And so I think the next episode, which we actually filmed after that episode but it aired first i played a soldier and i had my entire head was in this sort of like turban and uh like face wrapped so that literally all you could see was my eyes i looked like a ninja and it was great um <laughs> But what was great about that episode was I got to work with Peter McNichol, um, or actually he might've been in the the episode before, but Peter McNichol was Galen in dragon slayer, the film, and also Janos in ghostbusters 2. So I was totally geeking out about that. Like here I am in this Marvel universe that, you know, most other people would, would really be ultra excited about, which I was, but I'm like, wait, hold on. Is that Peter McNichol? And, uh, he was, he was. He was such a, he was such a warm and kind individual. I, he signed a bunch of, of Ghostbusters two stuff for me. And I told him that, you know, Dragon Slayer was one of the scariest movies I had seen at the time because, um, you know, I think it came out in 80 or 81. So I was only 10 and, uh, you know, there's that, there's a great scene with a a dragon at the end. And, um, this princess gets, you know, eaten, eaten alive. And, and so he, he, he loved that. And so it's funny, you know, obviously I've worked with a lot of, of prominent actors and producers and directors. And so look, like everyone else, you know, internally, I, you know, I geek out and I'm like, oh my gosh, there's, there's so-and-so and it, it represents a part of your childhood and a part of that make believe that we've all fallen in love with. I try to, when I meet, you know, certain actors, usually I give them their distance. I don't like to be, you know, you know, invasive at all. I like to just kind of field out and see if they're cool about it and just, you know, kind of hang out and see if, what they're talking about, what the conversation, you know, how that conversation is going. So when I do get a chance to speak with them, I try not to ask them about the same experience that everyone else asks them and those, those sort of iconic roles. So it was really, it was really nice to speak with Peter because, you know, bringing up dragon slayer and ghostbusters too, his eyes lit up and he got really excited and he just start, started telling stories. And, um, it was really fun to, to speak with him. He was, he was incredibly generous with his time and, and he signed a bunch of Ghostbusters stuff for me, <laughs> That's um, which, awesome. was, which was incredibly generous. So I I'm always so grateful of that. And, and I always try to make it, I, I don't ask for autographs a lot, but when I do, I try to make it as easy for them as possible. I always bring it pre-printed out. I have a Sharpie for them. i have an envelope. And if they, if they are willing to
0: do it, great. If not, no big deal. So um, yeah, I was, you know, I, that
3: go that goes a long way too.
0: Yeah, I was about to ask. It sounds like you might have a cool little uh, memorabilia set up in your office or something. <laughs> you know, it it's not as a lot of it is is
3: stored away. I have the cream. I have the you know. I have a few things. I got my cream puff. I've got my my sword. Um, I've got my you know. I've got my little Jack Sparrow action figure. Uh, and, all the essentials. Um, I've got my you know. I've a my Ninja Turtles yeah. stuff. Yeah, but uh, you know, it, it's hard because unless you have a huge house with a, a room or an area dedicated to all that stuff, it really gets out of control. So, um, but all my autographs are, 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 um, in a, in a binder that I keep and just, you know, cause that stuff, it, it, again, for me, it's less about, Oh, I met so-and-so and got their autograph. To me, it's sort of a window in time. It represents a project and the people you work with and the experiences that you have. And to me, that's, that's what it really, really boils down to. And I think that's, That lends itself into, you know, that, that is so much of fandom in general. It's, it's not so much of the, of the celebrity or the, um, or the starstruck, uh, you know, feelings that you get, obviously that comes into play, but it's, it's, it's what that represents. And that's what I love about films and cinema is that it's such, it's such an incredible medium and it makes us all feel things on so many different levels. I mean, you have this range of opinions on 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 one film. And even myself, I mean, how many times have you guys seen a film where you're like, God, that sucked. And maybe a year later or two years later, you give it another another day in court and you're like, wait a minute, that was, actually wasn't that bad. Or vice versa. <laughs> Basically
1: every Star Wars fan when it comes to The Last Jedi. <laughs> yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, sadly, more often than not, it's like, that film was awesome. And then you watch it again and you're, You think to yourself, what in the hell was I thinking? I want my money back.
1: (laughs) I mean, not everything can be rated as for the Lost stock, unfortunately. But, I mean, okay, so you mentioned that you try not to annoy like these awesome counterparts that you work with to get the signing. I mean, obviously, other than going up to Johnny Depp with a cream puff and being like, hey, bro, can you sign this for me? But (laughs) you did, okay, you did send us that picture that we loved. Of Basically, you got a chance to meet, between doubling for guys like Ewan McGregor and then all through the industry, meeting George Lucas, Mark Hamill, and pretty much everyone that we admire and love in the world. Can you kind of tell us a little bit of that experience meeting all these crazy guys from the star Wars cast?
3: Uh, yeah, what a great group of people. I mean, just in various ways, you know, whether it was through work or whatever, I've crossed paths with, you know, I got to meet David Prowse and Kenny Baker and Jeremy Bullock, who was the original Boba Fett. Um, to meet george lucas in passing i actually worked with mark hamill on a a tv show and it was one of those situations where we usually get the call sheet the night before and because you know they they give us you know the the map and the location and here's the call sheet and for whatever reason i didn't get the call sheet and it was on a show uh vip which was pamela anderson's show years ago which was such a fun show to work on i mean i I know it was kind of cheesy and weird and whatever but was what was great about it is the cast and crew they knew what it was they didn't take it too seriously and it was such a fun set to be a part of and so i reported to my trailer and i saw the call sheet because they were they were breaking down the scenes and the and the schedule of the day and i see mark hamill and i went to the went to the second ad uh and i said is that the mark hamill and she's like (laughs) sure is i was and and in my mind i'm thinking what the hell is mark hamill doing here on vip (laughs) Um, and he, it's funny. He had a little guest role where he played, I guess he played Pamela Anderson's uncle or something. <laughs> but man, you talk about, you talk about a guy who is just the most generous, kind, and you know, you've heard the expression idiot savant. Mark Hamill is a genius savant. That guy is a walking internet You bring up any, any category or anything and, and not in a know-it-all way, Mark Hamill has some level of knowledge on it and he just retains stories. So rewinding to what I was saying about how I don't like to, you know, the worst thing I could have done was go up to him and say, "Uh, Mark you know luke skywalker star wars i mean wow (laughs) so i went up to i I went up to him and it was great because he was actually sitting outside his trailer and i was walking by and he actually waved to me because he's just that's who he is so i walked over and i said mr hamill and of course you know i was kind of shaking and i was like there's nothing i could say to you that you haven't already heard and in perfect mark hamill fashion he says oh i don't know about that give it a try (laughs) <laughs> and it's like such a such a good guy and i said i really appreciated your work in the big red one and if you haven't seen that film it's a it's a it's a world war ii film uh with lee marvin it's an all-star cast um and david carradine is or no sorry bobby carradine is in it uh robert carradine and um anyway mark without missed mark hamill without missing a beat goes right into it oh lee marvin what a great actor starts telling Lee Marvin stories, starts listing Lee Marvin's, you know, great film, you know, iconic roles that Lee Marvin had over his career and boom, boom, boom. That's just, he's just brilliant. And he just remembers all that stuff. And he he lightened, he just, he, he brightens up and he's just so happy to speak of those experiences. And of course, it's reciprocal. Everyone is happy to listen to those stories. I mean, we wouldn't have gotten anything done on that that day if we had just let him keep going, but that's just who he is. He'll just start, he'll just start, talking and telling stories and so we actually did a scene a couple scenes together and he was so great and wonderful and what what a good what a, what a wonderful man and so at the end of the day I, I i knew i was gonna be back a few days later and i said you know mr hamill you know would it be okay if i brought some some items for you to sign i said i'll have it all prepared for it and he was like absolutely and he signed you know he signed i actually have the the original trilogy they they released the. Um, the uh soundtrack the score the john williams score and it came in this really nice you know packaging and things back when we all bought cds Mm -hmm. and mark mark signed the cover of that for me and he signed a luke skywalker you know you know card for me and signed a poster i mean and you know i left those items for him and if one or all or none of them got signed i would have been fine and he got them all you know i left him about a half a dozen things and he just Mm -hmm. such and 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 the type of guy that when you're leaving he will remember your name and say goodbye. Like I was leaving that night. He said, you know, Chris, great meeting you or whatever. But I was like, he he, he retains all of that. So anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to go off on a whole Mark Hamill. That's uh,
1: no, that's exactly what uh, we want yeah, to hear. He,
2: <laughs>
3: yeah. yeah. He, Mark, 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 Mark is, he's, he is a rare and unique and special individual. Incredibly, incredibly just what a human. Um, and then, yeah, got to, got to, uh, double Ewan McGregor on the island. And then it's funny, I was doubling Johnny Depp on Mordecai and Ewan and Re- Ewan McGregor was in that film as well. And so Ewan walked into the trailer. We were in the hair and makeup trailer and he sees me and he goes, he remembered me from the island. He goes, Chris, are you are you doubling me tonight? I go, no, I'm doubling Johnny. And he goes, oh, I see how you are. He's like, oh, okay. Sorry. You're you're climbing the ladder. Sorry. You're you're you know, you're too good for me. So, but you and Ewan, Ewan was you and is another one just so cool and and down to earth. Um and then I guess the big one I get asked a lot is, is JJ Abrams. So I worked with JJ back, uh, in the days of alias. I was, um, I was a stunt double on that show for, um, David Anders who played the, the bad guy Sark. And I was, a, I was a terrible, terrible double for David. I mean, I didn't look anything like him. I had just got off another, another gig where I was, you know, had, had, you know, was a little bit more muscular. And so I had some weight on me. And, but David was so cool. He's like, no man, you're great. You just stick around, you know? So, um, but I got to work with JJ Abrams. Uh, he drew, he obviously was creator and producer on that show and also directed several episodes. And so, um, he, he's one of those guys where just, he is not unlike Rob Marshall. I mean, he is laser focused, man. He comes to set and he has got it together and he knows exactly what is going down and he's got, he's thinking, you know, not only a few episodes ahead, he's, he's got the entire season arc um, so it's not surprising that he, he, he took the reins and, and did such a great job with, with, uh, um, you know, the, 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 new films. I, again, teach his own. I thought that, I thought that, um, uh, force awakens is episode seven, correct? Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. I thought they did a great job with that film and I think they walked a very fine line because when you, you know, as you guys know, there are a lot of people to please. And so I, I thought it was just the right amount of fan service. I thought it was. And for me, the parts that really spoke to me were those, the nostalgic throwbacks. I mean, when they panned over and you saw the Falcon again for the first time, I literally, you know, welled up a little bit. And so, um, you know, I don't geek out in the same ways that other people's do other people do. And that film isn't necessarily one of my favorites in this, you know, in the Star Wars realm, but um, I thought they did an incredible job with, with how they approached it and the story points that they focused on. And again, across the board, there were a lot of, of check boxes that had to be filled and it was a very delicate dance. And I thought, I thought JJ did a great job with that and handled it incredibly well
0: yeah I, and he
3: directed episode he he also
0: directed episode nine correct yep yeah he did correct. and yet, it, yeah. and that's how man you kind of you just spoke how i feel about the force awakens i really like force awakens and yeah i i think that movie had so much potential and i just i it always leaves me wondering i wonder what would have happened if uh jj abrams had the whole the whole series but it's cool you mentioned jj abrams because like we've had a couple other guests that have said the same things like. He's driven, has an idea, but he's still, you know, he's he'll work with you and he's personable. So that, that's cool that you uh, brought him up.
3: And look what he did with the Star Trek, you know, look what he did with the Star Trek films as well. I mean, he's uh, I mean, look, again, film is subjective and, you know, you can't please everyone, but he's you can't argue that he's an incredible storyteller. And, you know, and that's that's one of the things that's one of the main reasons i'm such a fan of pixar films and their body of work because they they choose a director and they get behind the director's vision and not to say that that's a dictatorship because film is collaborative but you have to serve the story and they get behind the director and his vision for the story and i feel like that's why those films are just so perfect and so well done i mean i've talked to people you know you take the weakest pixar film which in my opinion was probably the good dinosaur only because it had problems in production you know they had to they they had to stop production they sort of re you know re reassess the story and the 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 um the story points and and all that stuff but it's i mean my gosh what an incredible film so they do such good work and i feel like it's because of their approach and again not that directors should be dictators because we certainly see films where that goes south. Um but I think JJ is one of those directors that a studio can really get behind because his vision is so strong and so convincing and they see you know thinking ahead okay the fans are going to love this the studio is going to love this the you know it 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 gets all the it hits all those those levels so um yeah, I think he's and he was cool to work with. I mean, he wasn't incredibly chatty, but again, I wasn't I didn't really try to be. I mean, he's especially on television. Television moves so quickly. There's no time for small talk. You got you got to get in and get out. You're on you're on a tight schedule and the, and the next episode is right on your ass. So,
2: um but yeah, it, it was cool. It was cool to work with him.
1: That's awesome.
2: So uh so we so talking about Star Wars and um all the like jj and whatever we 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 know the ndas are, are a thing and we we understand that and in the last podcast we had someone who had worked on avatar and they weren't able to talk about it but we want to know can you give us any how was the experience of you know working on the mandalorian or are, are, are star wars fans going to like it just, just what like what's the spiciest thing that you're able to <laughs> drop on on us without you know getting in trouble
0: uh, chris say i w- will say that i've signed <laughs> sci- just say nothing yep. if you double for Boba Fett. Just say nothing. No, it's <laughs> Silence. No, um, yes. I will say.
3: I. No, I, 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 no, 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 no. I'm not saying that at all. No, no, no. I I've signed a lot of NDA. I've signed a lot of NDAs in my career, and I will say that this one was the most ironclad. I mean this this NDA was like twelve pages long, and you know what? I'm not. I'm not one of those people that wants to give details and spoilers i hate when i i mean as it is trailers reveal too much these days you know Um, agreed i mean they 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 give away way too many plot points but i get it it's marketing and you've got it you've got to get the asses in the seats in the theaters or in this case you know on the couches for streaming but um but i i don't enjoy that that i don't enjoy giving that stuff away so even if I could talk about it, I would only reveal the things that I was that I felt would not ruin the story for people. What I can say legally and morally is that Star Wars fans are going to lose their minds. So
1: <laughs> I want to hear. It I mean, yeah. Is
3: it's you know, as an audience member, and again, I, this is nothing. You know, this is all about season one, and everything that I'm about to say can be found online. I, when I heard they were doing the Mandalorian originally, I thought to myself finally, because, and this is before I knew anything about it. I thought it, I thought it was about Boba Fett himself. Um, And obviously in season one, we learned that the Mandalorian is not Boba Fett. But uh, when I heard they were doing that, I thought finally they're taking the coolest character from my favorite Star Wars film and giving him his own series. And so um, what what was what was special about that is again when when you have when you have the people again, you know not unlike um, not unlike the JJ uh, Abrams situation with with the Star Wars films you have so many people to please especially now that Disney and Lucasfilm are are have merged. You've got the Lucasfilm executives, you've got the Disney executives, you've got the Star Wars fans, you've got the Star Wars legacy, you know, team. You've got all of these people that are putting their input on it, wanting to make it the best it can be. And I mean, it was just it was an extra special project to see as an audience member. Um, and so I didn't I didn't know I would be able to be a part of it. I, did, I was not a part of season one. I was actually on um, a number of other projects. But, uh, during that time, and I was unfortunately unable to, to, to be there, but, um, my, one of my closest life friends is the stunt coordinator and fight coordinator. And, um, I was, I was Brian Watson and I'm so grateful to him for bringing me on for the second season. And it was, it's just, it was what an incredible, what an incredible group of people. I mean, everyone there is so passionate and it's so funny because everyone is so professional and. Then you hear these little side conversations and you realize that we're all such fans of the original material at heart. And, you know, you see people lose their composure because they start to geek out about stuff and you're like, ah, there it is, you know? So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it was really, it's, it's a special project and I, um, I hope that it goes for a long time because I think that the way that they approach just the content itself, I think that it's, um, the running time is perfect. Its simplicity is is, and I and I mean simplicity as a compliment. It's, you know, nowadays they throw in everything but the kitchen sink, and it's just too much. We're visually bombarded, we're bombarded by plot points and storylines and characters. I think the episodes are 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 perfectly crafted, and to my knowledge, you know, you gotta you have to give so much credit to Jon Favreau. I mean, he he's so passionate about it. And he is so, he is so respectful of the material. And I feel like when you, when you come from that place as a storyteller, you, you can't go wrong because you are going to constantly serve what's best for the story. I mean, too often, you know, of course in the, in these, in these round table meetings and these concept meetings, you always hear, wouldn't it be cool if ellipsis, you know, of course we all want to see those moments on screen and wouldn't it be cool if blank, blank, but does that best serve the story? And so that is where I feel like someone who has that level of reverence for the material and the subject matter is going to treat it with that care that it deserves. And I feel like season one of the Mandalorian absolutely achieved that. I haven't seen anything from season two, but I, I, I have to believe it's going to be the same if not more so. So.
2: So so it sounds like you're gonna have to come back on after season two drops and you're gonna you know, I
3: will have I will I will have a lot more stories after season two airs, yeah.
1: When so. the big boss Disney allows you to actually talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> the
3: mouse. The mouse the
1: mouse. The mouse will find you. Yeah. He's you don't mess with the mouse. <laughs> Um, But before we get to our our last question with you, I I have to ask a couple. I have to ask here, because you did work on National Treasure 2, and you know I did mention Nick Cage. (laughs) I saw, was it uh, Riley Poole's character that you did in National Treasure 2 and like that tilting table? Can you kind of tell us that experience? Because I'm very curious.
3: (laughs) Yeah, so National Treasure 2, if I had to choose a second favorite project aside from the Pirates films, it would probably be National Treasure 2 because it was the same you know, it was the same group of people. It was a Disney film. Um, it was Jerry Bruckheimer, Disney, you know, collaboration and a lot of the same crew. George ruggie was the second director stunt coordinator and what, what an incredible, incredibly fun ride. I mean, we got to go to Mount Rushmore, which is one of those places that you think, yeah, maybe I'll get there someday in my life. I, you know, I need it. It's on the, it's on the list but the reality is you're not going to get to Mount Rushmore unless you actually make an effort because it's not easy to get to. (laughs) And so to be able to go there, um, see Mount, not only see Mount Rushmore, but I actually got to sit on top of George Washington's head and take a photo up there from behind. It was very safe, but you walk up the back. People don't realize that there's actually a, a, it's a pretty high level of security there. And there's a, there's a giant metal staircase that leads up. And of course, you know, the park rangers are, 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 you have to be with a park ranger and have a, a, that level of a reason to be there. But we got to go up and see the, where the national archives used to uh, were originally intended to be housed. And then we got to walk up another set of stairs that, that brings you up to the back of Mount Rushmore. And when you come up over that crest and you see, you know, the, the black is the black Hills mountains that are just, just this expansive is, it was just breathtaking. It was breathtaking. And, that was just a really unique experience. But all even all that aside, just being a part of the of the movie was fun. Um, you know, like you, I I really appreciate Nick's work. I think he's had an incredible career. Um, I know he's had, you know, maybe a little bit of a rough time in recent years, but um, I he's always I mean, what I love about Nick Cage is that there's no one else like him. I mean, he right? is a unique individual. <laughs> and it's funny because for as zany and crazy as he gets on screen. He is so calm and collected and down to earth when when he's not rolling and he's just he's just cool and he just talks and he's kind of low key, which is kind of funny. But um, hmm. wow. I mean, what a great cast, you know, of that. And that was the first time I'd worked with Justin and he was so great. Um, in fact, I don't know if I don't know if he requested me or if it was the stunt coordinator, but um, and I don't remember if it was the hangover part one or two, but I got the call for one of those films to double Justin. And I couldn't do it because I was on another project and I, and I was so bummed because he was great to work with on national treasure Two, And ever since, you know, as you know, at the end of that film, they completely leave it open for a third installment and it's been in the works for years, but I guess now there's, this is the, this is the furthest along they've gotten. And I guess there's a script in the works. I, I would work on national treasure three in a New York minute and I would work on pirate six even faster than that. So um they're they're just it, they're just great films to be a part of they're, they're as much of an adventure to film as they are on screen like what you're seeing you know you're seeing those locations you're seeing um the chemistry with the cast and crew and it's just it was a blast it was an absolute blast and and uh um yeah like i said i i, I waited until the very end of the shoot because i don't like to bother him but nick actually signed a some Raising Arizona stuff for me, which, oh, uh, which, which, which made him, which made him giggle a little bit because I mean, I mean, my God, look his his resumes a mile long. I mean, look at the list of films I could have asked about and the fact that I, I presented him with the Raising Arizona DVD, he kind of chuckled. He was like, Oh, oh cool. And so he signed <laughs> it. It was
1: great. That was a really and John, spot
3: and John on. The
0: <laughs> <laughs>
3: well, that's don't ask me to do it again because I'm, I'm i don't know that i could and uh but john turtletop that was the director of those films and uh and he was so fun to work with as well so if i had to guess they would bring him back at least i hope they would but as you know or may not disney and and you know and um jerry bruckheimer have kind of parted ways in recent years and um i would love to see them reunite because i think that those two when they come together it's it's they do create some some really cool films so Hopefully that's the case.
2: So, uh, I feel like it would be a regrettable decision to not ask this question since you are such a, uh, well, um, seasoned stunt man. What has been your worst injury that you've experienced?
3: Ah, uh, so <laughs> we might need a separate podcast for this. <laughs> um, <laughs> Okay, so i got to come back after Mandalorian Season 2, and i got to come back. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> and then when National you know, <laughs> Treasure
1: 3 comes, you have to come again.
3: <laughs> Hopefully, you guys will not be hurting
0: that bad for guests. Um, Hopefully, by then, we'll have Nick Cage on. Because we just keep bumping into all these people that worked with him, so it's got to happen, right? <laughs> it's going to happen.
3: You got, it, the six degrees of separation just get smaller and smaller. You know, the, the, the stunt industry, in many ways... It's it's like a contact sport on a professional level. You're gonna take some thumps, and you know getting banged up to some degree is a part of it. But as I mentioned earlier, we all want to stay safe as possible. We're all we're all professional performers. But if you're in the game long enough, the chances for a major injury definitely increase. And up until this time, I had not had a major injury. But unfortunately. You know, in the stunt realm, rehearsals are often more dangerous than the actual day of filming because things are getting figured out. You're trying to dial it in, and it's a little bit of a guinea pig phase because you're thinking, you know, it's it's let's try it this way or maybe this way or what about this? And you know, you've got a lot of ideas being thrown out. Again, not that it's always a democracy, but you know, when you're trying to to think about these these gags, as we call them, um, you know, there's that scene in Back to the Future too when the future goes to hell. And Because Biff went back and gave his younger self the sports almanac and Doc, and Doc is explaining it to Marty on the chalkboard and how the timeline skewed at that point. That That is how I would describe my injury. It was one of those life-changing injuries. And I'd love to say that everything happens for a reason and my career and my life are better as a result. Um, but I don't know that that is the case. Um, the hardest part about my injury to come to terms with from personally was that it was caused by someone else. And, you know, I'm not one of those people that says, Oh, everything happens for a reason. You know, I don't know that everything happens for a reason. I think you find the reason, you know, you're dealt a situation and whatever the outcome is, it's up to you to decide your attitude towards it. And that can often be one of the hardest things in life. And so I'm incredibly inspired by people who have faced real diversity far more than I have. And are able to overcome it with such a positive attitude. It really is inspirational. Um, having said that, i'm 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 so grateful that I have fully recovered. but um unfortunately, I did. i was we were working on uh, the Lone Ranger. I was doubling Johnny, and we were in rehearsals, and uh, <laughs> we were doing a a wire sequence um, and I was dropped. There was some speed involved, and there was some height involved, and I was dropped um and i broke my back in two places now to be clear breaking your back is not you're not paralyzed you're breaking your, you can break your back the same way as you break your arm you break your bones of your back and i'm so i i'm thankful every day of my life that my vertebrae was my my spinal cord was not affected um it it it, it was really close to being affected and it was not but i did i did break two of my vertebrae and i was out for about a year and a half and it was, it was eye opening. It really makes you think about your life and your priorities and what's important because, you know, it's one of those things. I mean, I could, I could, you name a stunt man and I can tell you, you know, for the most part, a, a major injury they've had. And I was, it's one of those things you're always aware of. And I don't want to say that you don't think it can't, it can happen to you because you do think that, I mean, I, I you know, I've, a a number of times before a stunt, you know, I've thought, Oh, don't let this be the one, you know, stay safe, you know, stay focused, you know, be, bring your a game and all those things. But it's, it's just kind of when it, you just get into the professionalism of working and it becomes a, um, you know, it's a job like anything else. And you get into that mindset of a structure and a rhythm. And so when you do, when you stay safe for so long, I don't want to say it, conditions you or you become desensitized to it, you're aware of it. It's just that, you know, it hasn't happened yet. And so I try to stay positive and not be one of those people that's like, oh, I'm due for one. Um, but unfortunately I was. And it was and it happened. And like I said, I was out for about a year and a half. And um and key, you know, I'm so grateful that I recovered, perhaps <laughs> if not financially, physically, which is in the grand scheme of things, is far more important. Um but it's, it's definitely a reality of this business. I mean, you know, there's, I, I, there's a number of people who have passed, who are now paralyzed, whose lives are altered, you know, and will never be the same again. And it's one of those things. And it's, look, it's, it's like, it's like firefighters saying, complaining that the flames are too hot, right? You would never hear that out of their mouth because they know what's involved in their, profession and the choices that they make and they and how they approach it and it's the same with the sun stunt industry no one sets out to get hurt no one sets out to be a daredevil and be crazy um we all want to keep working and stay safe but you know when you're when you're like i said if you're in the you're in this business long enough and you're on the big films that i've been so fortunate to be on they it's 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 a it's a little bit of an adrenaline push and they want it they you've got to you've got to push that envelope a little bit and it gets it gets scary and dangerous but um but yeah i mean look that's 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 one project out of the you know i've been in over 40 feature films and gosh close to 200 episodes of television and so um it's it's just you know it it, um the numbers uh, yeah i I'm so thankful that I've had the career that I've had and as stayed stayed as safe as I did for as long as I did. So, um but you know, something to think about for for anyone out there that 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 sees the glamour of this business and and sees the dollar signs, um it's it's a reality and you and it's funny, I remember I was doing uh, the film Old School. I was doubling for Jeremy Piven for The Stairfall um with him and the Will Will Ferrell's character. They were doing that double stairfall. And right before we went, they had some background, um, that were, they were playing the college students that were in the the university room. And this, this, this girl asked me, she says, now, how are you going to do this without getting hurt? And I said, and I said, I'm not, this is going to hurt. (laughs) Like there's, there's no way to fall down a flight of stairs with another human being and not get hurt. It's just that's. And so, and so it's funny, like now being an older, wiser guy, I look back and I think, what the heck was I thinking on so many of these things, but that's, 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 you know, speaking again to the positive, that's the pride that I take in in a challenge of that nature, because it's our goal to, to do those, those gags and those sequences that we know are going to have some level of bumps and bruises, but to tackle them from a place of safety, a place of professionalism and a performance level that is going to make it work for the project, and so, yes, you know you're gonna you're gonna take thumps here and there, but the goal is to do it as safely as possible and as smart as possible because we don't just do it once. You know, I remember I had to do that I think three or four times, and I can't tell you how many times I've done, you know, a dozen takes or more on certain things. So, um, anyway, side note for for listeners out there
0: who. Who think this is all fun and games. (laughs) Dang, I was really thinking about changing from the podcast game to becoming a stunt double. Um, But maybe not. I told you before I love Jackass. And as a kid, I was like, I was like pretty sure I was going to be the next character in Jackass.
3: (laughs) Well, really quick story. I worked on a film called Deuces Wild. And it was with, and if you've seen that film, not many people did. Uh, johnny knoxville had a small role in there and we were working with johnny and it, and this was before jackass came out And so johnny again, not unlike nick cage. He's one of those very Kind of quiet reserved guys. At least he was back then mm-hmm. So here he, he comes up to us now. This is in the year 2000. So you Gotta rewind the clock a little bit. He comes up to the stunt team We're all sitting around and he has a vhs tape in his hand <laughs> and he says hey guys because back then in the in the trailers, now they have DVD players and Blu-ray players. But back then in the trailers, they would they would have VHS players and TVs. Yeah. And he says, Hey guys, I want to show you something. And it was his basically his pitch tape for the show Jackass. It hadn't wow. been picked up yet. And we were watching yeah, all insane. these air quotes stunts that he was doing. <laughs> and we all looked at him and we thought, You're out of your mind, man. How are you? How are you still walking? Why do you do this? You're, this is insane. But, oh. and then, you know, fast forward six months or however many months later and he got the show and he took off. So, um, it was kind of funny. It's like, we knew him when, you know, before he got, before he, 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 he branded himself. So wow, interesting. I think, I think we missed
0: can end the podcast there because i didn't think i'd get a johnny knoxville story that that makes it for me (laughs) see you later
1: no it's (laughs) good you're like final episode right there even though okay i'd say yours is your stuff is slightly more technical than theirs where they're dropping you know like pool balls on their actual balls so yeah yeah, i'd say you're a little bit more technical more of an art than that
3: Yeah, we again we've got to be able to do it multiple times. I mean yeah. not to take any, not to take anything away from Johnny, but anyone can <laughs> do something once. You know, it's like Oh that's I great. can I can get I can get hit I can get hit by a bull once. I'm not
0: I'm not gonna say I'm gonna get up get up from that, but
1: I can get hit by it. I'm not going to
0: but... Oh my gosh. We're we're about to start some Twitter beef between Chris and Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> no. no, hey, look. John, hey, it's funny. I I was on a plane
3: one time and, you know, of course, when you're next to someone on an airplane, the conversation starts and they say, what do you do for a living? And I usually say I do something else just because it, 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 it's just, it just, you go down a different avenue. But the one uh, on the offbeat chance that I say what I do, I can't tell you how many times people have asked me, are you famous? And I say, (laughs) if you have to ask, the answer is no. So when I, I've got nothing on Johnny Knoxville. He's a household name. He's doing something right.
1: Or you're like, no, and that's the whole point. <laughs> uh, oh, but we have to ask, too. So we mentioned The Mandalorian, but what other stuff are you working on, either in the realm of stunts, or I know a lot of people, and I've even seen in interviews of you, have just that love of cinema in general. What are some things that you're currently working on or have been working on recently?
3: Well, I mean, obviously, you know, given the current pandemic, it's really thrown you know ever it's thrown a curveball into everything um you know there are very few if any productions happening right now fortunately we we wrapped on mandalorian season 2 right before the craziness hit and um but obviously a majority of the productions have been affected and you know it's still up in the air as to when things are really fully going to come back understandably so um because people's safety is paramount um, for myself, you know, I've, I've done, I've done my fair share of independent filmmaking. Um, I've written, produced, directed, edited uh, a lot of my own projects. Um, a lot of documentaries, a lot of shorts. I shouldn't say a lot, a handful. Um, and uh, fortunately it's funny. I don't know if you guys have seen that meme on the left-hand side of the screen. It says video editor before COVID. And on the right-hand side of the screen, it's the same image. It says video editor after COVID. <laughs> it's like nothing, <laughs> yeah. you know, you got your, if you've got your editing bay, you know, and you're indoors, great, you know, quarantine and do your thing. So fortunately I've been working on, um, a couple of editing projects, most of them personal. Um, but I have done, um, some, some, uh, independent contractor work for, for Disney, um, uh, trying to do more, more along those lines. Um, but yeah, f- primarily these days, it's just a lot of editing work, a lot of, um, projects, you know, uh, a couple of, uh, pitch, uh, mock, tra- I'm sorry, um, mood reels and pitch trailers for some projects, uh, that I've gotten the works and, um, just stuff here and there, nothing of note, you know, uh, that anyone would, would, you know, think that was, a was a major project or anything of that nature. But, um, yeah, as far as stunt, as far as the stunt realm, things are kind of on hold until, until this, this COVID situation gets figured out. But, um, I do know that some productions are happening overseas. I know London, um, a number of productions have, have come back. Um, and they're working in what's known as a bubble production where the entire cast, crew, everyone involved is literally, you know, they're all staying in the same location. They're getting shuttled to and from the studio. They all work together and then they go back. I don't know how they're handling time off, but um, I do know they're being as as safe as possible. And, and you know, and in other countries, to my knowledge, have somewhat of a, a better handle on this than unfortunately we have um, so far. So it's, it's a shame. It, it's really it's one of those thing that's affecting everyone you know it's it's not it's not it's, there's no one no one is is immune to this as, as far as the the um the effects of it is concerned obviously not not speaking to the medical side of things but yeah i mean it affects i mean you know i've have, i have a number of friends that that um are in the medical industry that is really their industry is is doing well and thriving but they all they all hate that this is the reason that it's doing well and thriving. You know, they, they want to be making medical advances and, you know, improving the quality of people's lives, not, not scrambling to save them. So um, yeah, it's a mess, but um, you know, on a positive note, it, I think, you know, there's always, you have to find the good in every situation and um, you know, again, working from home I think has opened a lot. It's, it's changed the mindset in many ways. I think that we're going to learn that there is definitely a creativity that comes from being in your own space and, and not being structured in a certain way. I'm not saying that, that you shouldn't, you know, you can't be creative when you go into an office or into a, into a, you know, production studio of any nature, but I'm just, I'm just speaking to that. It's something that we've never really thought about at, to this degree in the past. And now all these, all these new avenues and aspects of life are coming to light because of the situation we've been forced into. So I think that's kind of cool and unique.
1: Um, would you be able to shout out a few of the names of some of the independent work you've contributed to? For Because, I mean, our podcast, we do pride ourselves on kind of broadcasting that independent work as a group that isn't tied to Disney, IGN, and some of the bigger names. And we've, for a lot of our guests, like Matt Bush, in fact kind of pushed on his movie, Aladdin 3477, and like to highlight that independent work. Can you share some of those names for us and our listeners?
3: Oh, gosh. I mean, I'd be happy to, but it's really nothing anyone would know. It's all my own productions. I mean, I started out in documentaries because documentaries from a filmmaking standpoint, from a production standpoint, are usually the least expensive. You know, you don't have to deal with the permits. You don't have to deal with a lot of the Um, a lot of the paperwork involved and the locations and things like that you can get usually for, for either little or no money. Um, the very first documentary I did was uh, called Ed Vern's rock store. And it's based off the, um, the iconic roadside pit stop of the same name. It's off Mulholland highway. And it was, it was, it was built in the early 1900s, I think 1906 um, as a stagecoach stop and it evolved into so many things, a post office and a diner and a gas station. And then in the 1960s, Steve McQueen started going there on his motorcycle and it kind of put it on the map, so to speak. And, um, it just, it just took off from there and became this sort of, you know, iconic Americana, um, you know, roadside stop and, and very, I mean, it's huge within the motorcycle community. And so I had the pleasure of, 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 of telling that story and got to, got to speak to Chad McQueen, who's Steve McQueen's son. And of course I asked him some karate kid stories after we were done. (laughs) And, uh, he he was absolutely fantastic. I mean, one of the talk about talk about a contrast of, of character. I mean, just nothing could be further from Dutch, the guy, the, the guy that he played in karate kids, such a kind down to earth, cool guy. Um, and was, uh, was very fortunate to have a legendary voice actor, uh, Peter Cullen who as you know does the voice for Optimus Prime mm. and um, You know back in the day was the voice Avenger on on Dungeons and Dragons and I mean I'd be here for the next two hours if I listed every credit that man has voiced I mean he's he is he is the one of the premier uh, He's one of the top artists in that in that industry and he did the voiceover and the narration for our for our film and then um, yeah, I, I you know I did I did a handful of documentaries. Did another one called Century of Light, which is about the world's longest burning light bulb that is in a firehouse up in Livermore, California. And um, I had the great fortune of having Catherine Mary Stewart, who among other things um, was Maggie in the Last Starfighter, which is one of my top three favorite films of all time. We actually got connected. She did our narration and. I'm so proud and happy to say that we've become really good friends and she's such a wonderful person. So she did, you know, the voiceover for, for that film. And then I've done, you know, a handful of shorts, just, um, uh, if you check out IMDB, you'll see under my directing credits, but it's, um, I'm so, I'm, it's so cool that you guys, guys, uh, are, are so involved with the, with the independent film community. It's, you know, it's a tough game because, you know, Independent film is really a, a relative term, you know. I mean, you look at the Sundance Independent Film Festival; they're not independent films anymore. No, it's just, it's they're gotten so too big. big, you know. I mean, I mean, e- e- even the smallest film festival on the on the legitimate film festival circuit is really, you know, it's 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 a tough game because, you know, everyone wants. You know, look, the reality is that everyone has these passion projects and these brand name actors and artists, they love doing, you know, they get to do their big studio films and they love when, you know, an independent or, you know, air quotes, independent script comes across their agent's desk because it's, they're usually very experimental. They're highly artistic. They're incredibly visionary. And they, who wouldn't want to be a part of that as an artist. And so as an audience member, why wouldn't you why would you not want to see one of those that level of actor in one of those roles um, getting to be a part of that type of project? So the independent film festival has has changed and morphed in many ways over the years. And it, it's tough. You know, I mean, not unlike Comic Con. Look, Comic-Con used to be an actual comic book convention, right? <laughs> I I mean, now now it's it's all about films because that's where the money is and that's where the that you know, that's the the large you know the fandom exists there and it's just so you know you have to you have to evolve with the times i get it but um i'm really proud of the body of work that i created and and i'm still creating um uh you know i've got like like most filmmakers you know it's like any you know aspiring director um i've got a number of scripts on my hard drive that would love to see get financed and i have a number of people i would love to collaborate and partner with but it's at the end of the day it's 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 a tough game and it's um it's funny on one hand you think how does a movie ever get made? because of all the moving parts and so, so much is at stake. And yet they constantly crank out the crappiest (laughs) film. It's like, and it's such a slap in the face when, you know, of course every, every filmmaker and writer thinks that their film has the most heart and is, you know, has the most impact and is the, the, the best story. But you, you, it's such a slap in the face when you see these endless, just, Ugh, it's just the, the crap that is just getting produced. Yeah. You I, know, I I, to, obviously, I'm not to speak specifically, but...
0: No, no. I have to say, as a musician, I think that a lot when I see a crappy movie. I'm like, it takes a lot of work to put a song out. But I'm like, it, it, I can't imagine the work it takes to put a movie out. And then you're like, then I don't appreciate it. I almost feel bad when I don't appreciate a film because I'm like, how much work went into that?
3: But here's what's interesting. Okay, as a musician, here's my question. Have you ever noticed and all of us can, can relate to this. Why are films so bad? (laughs) But I cannot name, I cannot name a single bad movie soundtrack. I cannot name a single bad movie score. You take the crappiest film and I promise you that score is in your playlist. It's movie composers are, I mean, and that just goes, that speaks to not only the artistry of, of, of film of score composition, but just the magic of, of music itself. They're always, even like I said, the worst film still has an incredible score. Why is that? It, 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 there's like no correlation there. So it's just, it's interesting. Again, I, I that's, I think about things like that I'm like yeah. God this this score this movie was awful but I love this music
0: yeah, yeah I know I think that's that's all time I'm like I'm like th- these people each part each person put so much work into their part and there's a lot of good parts it just didn't hit the beats you know it's like what is <laughs> like, what is that you know what is that golden nugget that you have to achieve to make a good film I don't know <laughs>
1: I just appreciate we finally said the word nugget on this podcast as well. <laughs> but, yeah, we we love hearing that independent stuff, too. Because, like, I love your viewpoint of just cinema in general, how there's great having the big franchises that are just plain old fun, as well as the independent work that is truly advancing the industry. So, I mean, if you have links for that, that we could share the listeners, we'd love that as well after the show, but justice. Oh, thank you. If justice, if you had that last question that you always love asking people,
2: I do like asking this question. And I think it's uh, a, you know, I would hope that people who listen to this podcast, you know, maybe they're interested in whatever the, um, interviewers been doing in their career they, they learned something from this question so uh, what has been your greatest professional failure and how have you learned from it? Oh. well I, I,
3: I love this question because I feel like one facet of the industry is this belief that you have to that you have to constantly be successful and additionally constantly promoting those victories. to be clear, failure has a lot of definitions and each one of those definitions is a personal thing and i feel like you have to set those parameters for success and failure you know even though on a daily basis we're bombarded by what would appear to be very clear illustrations of of what they are um but you have to you have to discover that for yourself and establish that for yourself and you know hindsight is always 2020 20, and i don't think i'm happy to say that i don't think i've had one big failure that could be identified i would say it's more of a handful of missteps and missed opportunities that over many years add up to a certain result. Um, but again, I, I, I'm only able to recognize those looking back. I always felt that I, that I took the proper steps or, you know, made those moves accordingly. But, you know, again, in retrospect, if I had to choose one thing that wasn't necessarily a failure, but where I should have been more assertive would probably be voicing my opinion on the gag on Lone Ranger that I broke my, that I, my back was broken on. You know, at that time I was a 16 year industry veteran. I'd worked on huge films with the biggest names in the business. I didn't feel comfortable and it wasn't out of fear of my abilities or lack thereof. It was about the inherent danger and the probability of something going wrong. And I had a sense of that before going into it, but you know, it's tough. You, again, it's a collaboration and you want to be a team player and something is put in front of you and you want to do your best to make it work. Um, I've never been one of those gut feeling people because I've had what I would have thought would have been a gut feeling throughout my life and whatever the situation was, didn't necessarily take place. So then I look back and say, well, I thought that was a gut feeling, but maybe it wasn't. And maybe we all go through that. Um, but yeah, so I I think it's, 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 it's a matter of being in those situations, being strong enough to stand up for what you feel isn't right. And I think that is incredibly, you know, timely right now in our, in our present day society. Um, you know, you know, I want to say, speak to those specifically, but I feel like, you know, being true to yourself, recognizing a situation that, that isn't right for you or is not going to be the best for you or where even someone else is going to get hurt. Maybe not even yourself. I think it's just the awareness of a situation in general. So I wish I would have spoken up during that discomfort and said, hold on. I don't like the way that this is set up. I mean, I actually, I, I know for a fact, I joked about it and I said, Oh, this is a neck breaker. Um, unfortunately it was a back breaker. So, um, but again, it, you know, it is what it is in that regard. But yeah, so, um, yeah, I, I would say to, to anyone in any industry that, you know, try to apply that in your, in your personal situation and, and be, and that's the hardest part is being able to recognize those situations where yes, that was, that was the appropriate time and the appropriate way to bring my, um, whatever, my disagreement or my inhibitions or my issues and make them known and so yeah but um you know like anyone else you know again in retrospect um that's easy to say and not always easy to recognize in that moment but but thank you for asking that question it's it's nice to not always focus on the on the the success of the film industry. <laughs> I'm doing ja- I'm doing my jazz hands for those who can't see.
1: <laughs> that That is great. I mean, you're right. It's good to focus on both the success and the failure and sometimes just listen to that gut instinct you have deep down. Um, whether it's for good things or bad things, it's good to listen to that. But again, I want to thank you so much, Chris, for coming on the show. Uh, we really appreciated having you on and loved all your input.
3: Oh, it was it really, guys. It was an absolute pleasure. It was so great to meet all of you, and I love what you do. Now more than ever, you know, it's so important that we have this type of outlet. And you guys, like, like I said, you bring so much to to so many people, and in such a fun way. And I would just, I would just, I would, I would come back again in a heartbeat. Although I know that you have far more. I'm sure you have a laundry list of people and, uh, as you should, <laughs> um, I'm, I'm literally, I'm, I'm, it's funny cause there's so many people in the industry that have so many great stories. Um, it's, it's, it, you can't, you can't help it when you're in the industry this long and have worked with this many people, you're going to have those connections and those, those interactions and so many great stories out there that, um, of you know the early years of the industry and the legends the true legends of the industry and things of that nature so um yeah like i said i'm i'm happy to have been a part of it and i thank you guys so much this has been a blast
0: yeah it has been a blast man these interviews have just been like yeah just the best part of this podcast i mean that was always always my vision but it took a couple of years to build that steam and these have just been the, just the roller coaster, like coaster of emotions. Like we start off having fun talking about jackass and then, and then the real, <laughs> the real life, you know, stuff comes out. So just thank you for those moments. And um, yeah, we, we look forward to seeing what else you do. And um, and look forward to hopefully having you back on, even after Nick Cage comes to visit. So,
3: <laughs> <laughs>
0: I don't know. You may you may want to end it there. That might be
3: the yeah, best way to right. go out, right there.
1: I mean, like you showed up with a cream not, puff. Not, saying... not the Declaration of Independence, but <laughs>
3: <laughs> I love it. Oh, I man. Love it.
1: But, but guys, <laughs> check out some of Chris's stuff. We'll be sh- obviously. Show some love to Pirates of the Caribbean, a lot of the bigger franchises. But Chris, if you have some links, we'd love to share some of your documentaries as well and for our listeners to check out. And everyone, enjoy your week and thank you for listening.
3: Thank you, guys. Such a pleasure.